Ballistic Sports Foundation Physiotherapy and Georgetown Honda present Out of the Park with Barry Davis. This week, we show former Blue Jay and minor league catcher Brian Girolam in a video of one of the worst home plate collisions in history. It's the first time he's actually ever seen this video, and he's in it. Oh yeah, he got me. As a catcher, you get trucked so much in your career, you kind of have a inept, uh, I guess, uh, a good ability of understanding that you might get trucked here. And you just, as long as you get an opportunity to put yourself in a position to protect yourself and still hold on to the ball. And now here's a guy who's never had to ask the coach if he dropped the ball, because he knows he's always dropping the ball. It's Barry Davis. Whoa. You know, I had to live through how many years of people making fun of me dropping a baseball. And yet nobody seems to want to put themselves in my position on what that was like to have the ball come to me. Uh, again, nowhere near what we're talking about with our pal Brian Gerolaman this week. But I tell you what, folks, you are in for quite a treat. Tom, this is not one of the most well-known guests we've had. A lot of Blue Jay fans may have never even heard of Brian Gerolaman. But when you hear him speak, when you hear his story and see his story, uh, I think you're going to become a quick fan of Brian Gerolaman. Yeah, that's that's real easy. I mean, and again, we say this in the interview, he's one of those names that whenever we bring him up to any major league player that's ever worked with him, known him, known someone that's worked with him, they go, oh, Jero! He's got such an amazing reputation and our viewers and listeners are about to see why. Yeah, one of the better defensive catchers that has gone through the Toronto Blue Jays minor league system. Unfortunately, he never was able to reach that peak other than, I think, sitting in the Blue Jays dugout when he was called up in a September call-up. We'll hear Brian Gerolaman's story this week. We will also look into yet another Blue Jay injury, this one to Ryan Barucki, and we'll find out from Raj Sapaya exactly what a forearm flexor strain is. Up next, though, Tom, uh, well... Apparently, you're going to uh, give me a little piece of your mind over a couple of things that transpired on Friday night. There's Tom Forth. I'm Barry Davis. You're watching and listening to Out of the Park. A play ball! Ladies and gentlemen, girls and boys, the first pitch with Barry Davis. And the first pitch is brought to you by a number of people. Ballistic Sports, our pals at Ballistic Sports. We've been showing you the board game for weeks and weeks and weeks. And hopefully uh, in the next little while, we'll have some more information on these great board games that allow you to sit and watch sports while at the same time playing this really cool game. The first pitch is also brought to you by my employees, my good pals over at Georgetown Honda. And starting this week, in fact, on Friday, Tom, I posted my first full walk around video you've seen it already oh, yeah. walk around of a 2021 crv i'm going to be i'm in the process of starting up my own youtube page you came up with the name of these cool little segments and they're called out of the park and under the hood with barry davis so clever you know who came up with the name out of the park by the way no i don't my wife ah uh, that makes sense she's a smart cookie <laughs> She is a very smart cookie. All right, Tom, enough of these pleasantries back and forth. First of all, I messed up the date at the beginning of the show. I said Thursday or Friday, but it was actually Thursday. Yep. And the Blue Jays were playing the Boston Red Sox. 
Toronto Maple Leafs were playing game one with the Montreal Canadiens. And I was sitting out in my backyard enjoying a beautiful night watching the Toronto Blue Jays for a little while. And then when they fell behind, I quickly switched over to the hockey game. And you, Thomas, took exception to this. But you did not have the kahunas to actually go on social media and tear me a new one. So I'm giving you the option. I'm giving you this platform right now to tell me and tell the world what I did that was so wrong. Okay, I've got some problems. The Blue, uh, the Blue Jays need our support. They're playing in unfamiliar territory. They don't even have a home park, right? Semyon was on this week talking about how hard it is. They need our support. The Leafs have enough support. They do, right? Once they get the conference finals, Barry, I'm okay with you thinking out on, on the odd baseball game here and there. But we're a baseball podcast. We got to live baseball. We got to love it. We don't just flick away. What are we going to do out of the rink this week because the Leafs are in the playoffs? No, we're not. We stick with what we love. Okay. Um, it's the playoffs. The Leafs have not won a Stanley Cup since 1967, the year before I was born. They are playing the Montreal Canadiens in the postseason for the first time in, what, 30-some-odd years? Mm -hmm. Do you know? Uh, nope. No, I don't. But it's, okay, it's, well, it's a long number. time. I'm just, I'm just making up the number 30, okay? 30-some-odd years, okay? So it's been a long time. The Jays were getting it handed to them. And, yes, I should know by now, with this Blue Jays offense, they can come back from anything. Right? I, I say it to you how that, often. Having said that, the Leafs were in a 1-1 tie. It was the third freaking period. I wanted to see if they were going to win this game. If it were against any other team, I probably would have stuck with the Blue Jays. But this was the Leafs and Canadians. I didn't have a choice. I had to do it. I had to do it. Did I tick you off? Did I disappoint you? Yes. And for that, I am humbly sorry. But this may be the second worst thing I did that Thursday Yeah, it's night. only the second worst thing. The Leafs, you know what? I, I may not agree with it, but I understand it, and or I can understand it. The uh, the second choice you made on that fateful Thursday night, um, I really want to take issue with. So. Uh-oh. I'm wondering if this is the same one I'm thinking, and I hope it is. Otherwise, then we've got three. All right. Go for it. What do you think it is? No, no. You tell me. You thought the Blue Jays had the game in the bag. Yeah, that's the one I was thinking about. You flicked away, didn't you? Yeah, and, and, and I also wrote something. You did, too. Oh, man. Yeah, you tweeted. What did you tweet? It got, oh. It... Don't worry. The Jays have got this. Yeah. Yeah. So what are you thinking? Like, the Jays need our help. They need our support. Ah, I got this. Don't worry about it. Right? right. I was going to tear right. into you on social that. media. Hmm? Yeah. I was going right. to tear into you, but I need more than 144 characters. Oh. Because, because you don't just give up on the team. I mean, if we're not supposed to give up on the team when they're losing, why are we doing it when they're winning? This had nothing to do with giving up on the team. This had to do with, okay, so over here was like this lovely plate of french fries which we call the blue jays right and they're all you know perfectly cooked all ready for me seasoned ready to go and then over here was this big juicy 
blue and red pizza in an empty box. And it was so rare to see this beautiful pizza, I had to watch it. And I apologize. So I tell you what, from this point on, from this point on, I promise that if the Leafs and the Jays are playing at the same time, I will watch the Jays. Unless it's game four, five, six, or seven. And then I... I'll I'm okay with picture in picture, right? You've got... Well, then why doesn't the app do that? The sp- I can't figure out how to do that on the Sportsnet app. And I've got another bone. What I'd be okay with? You know, watch that? the Leafs game, sure. Listen to the Jays on the radio. You can <laughs> almost hear everything that's going on. Wow. Did you just... You're just full of venom today, aren't you? I am. I've okay. got a cat attacking a paper bag right beside me, too. Good for you. Good for you. Okay, so here's the deal. Uh, like I said, I, 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 I screwed up. And I'll admit it. I should have stayed loyal to the Toronto Blue Jays. I just should have, should have watched the Toronto Blue Jays game. But I did not. Okay? Bad on me. But I, I promise I'll continue watching Jays. And again, you got to give this Blue Jays team credit. People have been ripping mats, and he had a really bad inning on Thursday night. But I've seen some great pitchers have bad innings and then turn around and put in a nice long outing. And that's exactly what we saw. It's my favorite start he's had this year. That's a character-building start. I think Ricky Romero tweeted something about it. Yeah, I've seen Mark Burley do that. Yeah, I've seen him give up a seventh spot at the Trop in like the second inning and he ended up going seven innings after that. And he was fantastic. Speaking of Mark Burley folks on next week's show, we're going to talk to not Mark Burley. Mark Burley doesn't talk to anybody, but we're going to talk to somebody who knows Mark Burley better than anybody. And who will divulge stories about Mark Burley that Mark Burley never would. And that is his father, John Burley. They called Mark Burley, Papa bear. Well, this is the Papa of the Papa bear. Yeah. I cannot wait. Yep. You know, I'm I'm a father of a child that I'd love to see play in the majors. So I've got to have my ears open for this talk. I can't wait. This is true. And if there's anybody that has more infectious injuries than you, sir, it is uh, poor Mr. John Burley. And uh, you guys can share your, your wounds with each other when we chat. But we still, <laughs> but this week it's all about Brian Drolliman. And we'll talk to him in uh, just a few minutes. But first of all, what in the world? is wrong with Ryan Barucki. We'll find out next. There's Tom Forth. I'm Barry Davis. You're watching and listening to Out of the Park. Foundation Physiotherapy presents The Medical Room. We are joined once again by our good pal Raj Sapaya from Foundation Physiotherapy. Now, Raj, Tom was unable to make it for the recording, and when I told you it was just going to be the two of us, your response, Tom, was... (laughs) Good. That's good. It was like the good old days. Just me and you. No third wheel, Barry. We don't need a third wheel anymore. Don't tell Tom he's the third wheel. Uh, Raj, before we get to Ryan Barucki's injury, I'm sure you saw what happened to Kevin Pillar this past week where he took a pitch right off the schnoz. The dude bled like crazy. His face looked terrible, but... He didn't go down in, a, in pain. He didn't have to be carried off the field. He shows up at the ballpark the next day saying, am I in the lineup? First of all, how lucky is he that he is able to actually walk and say that right now? 
I mean, hey, hey, first of all, he's lucky because anywhere else into the head, it's a concussion, it's a head injury, right? Um, so, you know, good for him. I mean, it's it's not it's not the greatest thing, but you know, a, a deep bleeding and, and a bleed like that, an injury like that is still it's still gonna hurt, but it's not gonna cause too much like long term damage, which you know, which is what we want for for an athlete of that level. Is the uh, parts of the noggin would you say are the hardest bones in your body? Are they the hardest bones in our body? Um, I mean, it, it depends where in the head. There are some parts of the head which are structurally a bit more like sound, like probably the top of the head. Mm -hmm. um, but some of the face bones or the cheekbones are, are probably not as strong as, let's say, you know, uh, top part of their heads. I mean, obviously, the top part of our head has more, you know, it protects the brain. So that's why it's probably have to built a little bit stronger uh, but it's still not definitely as strong as some other thicker bones in our body so um, within our whole skull the top of the head is definitely more structurally sound but the face and cheekbones are typically fractured um, quite often the jaw the nose right they're smaller bones Raj a couple of weeks ago we were talking about a hip flexor strain and we got all the advice from you on that so is a forearm flexor, which is the injury that Ryan Barucki has, is that the same kind of muscle or bone or whatever that we're talking about in a hip flexor? Yeah, so it seems to be that the way the Jays are reporting it, they're not there to, uh, and again, this could be a, this could be a major lead thing, it could be a Jays policy, but they're not telling us the exact muscle, they're just telling us the, the job of the muscle. So um, the forearm flexor, just like the hip flexor, it's not the actual muscle, there's a bunch of muscles that make the hip flexor. Um, the forearm flexor. So when we think of flexing or flexor, it's the movement. So flexion of my wrist is this movement. This is flexion. This is extension, right? So the forearm flexors are here. I'm sorry, I'm cutting off there, but these are my forearm flexors on this side, right? And my forearm extensors are on the back. This was not a good idea for the virtual uh, background, <laughs> right? So these good. are the extensors. These are the flexors. So which muscle, there's a few muscles in there, right? Which muscle is, is affected they're not telling us but yeah it's a strain it's a muscle strain like any other muscle overuse um, or just like an overload injury which is going to create that, that strain on, on one of those muscles there when it is your pitching arm and you're a pitcher and this is your lifehood um what do you do to get your arm back because this began before this was diagnosed he had talked to the trainers about his arm being tired which is you know a whole whole different type of thing because you know, we know what it's like to be tired. We want, you know, just overall tired, but for your arm in particular to be tired, what does that actually mean? Oh, I mean, it pro probably meant he was getting fatigued, which meant the muscles just weren't putting out as much. In an athlete, I would imagine tired, just like most of us, just means we don't have as much output as we're used to, right? Which is why our body's shutting down. So, you know, athletes are very in tune with their body. So if he's a pitcher, he knows what kind of output his arm can give. If his, if his arm's not giving that, about that same kind of output, he's likely reporting it as fatigue or tired. Um, if you are fatigued or tired and you keep going, that's when you're going to get your injury because at one point the muscle's just going to give up on you because it's not going to want to give that same output anymore. What would he do to rehab this and, and prepare to get back in the lineup? Yeah, so it's it, luckily, like they said, it's a strain. So it, I'm, I'm assuming nothing's torn or, or nothing's like majorly injured. So it's likely that he was tired and the muscle maybe pulled a little bit. So it looks like I think they've given about 10 days, right, Barry? 10 or 14 days on the, on the injury list. So yeah, probably just rest recovery and strengthen. Just giving him time off to bring that arm back to where it should be. 
in terms of its output, right? So they got to give it some rest, probably a little bit of massage, heat, uh, and just taking that like load management is what I would say, right? Just reducing the load on his arm so that he can strengthen it and stretch it and then go back into it um, in 10 to 14 days. Well, Ryan Barucki had a tired arm. Raj, I'm just simply tired. So I'm going to say goodbye and we'll talk to you next week. <laughs> oh, yeah. Later, man. Bye. She's a good girl, loves your mama, loves Jesus in America too. She's a good girl, strays about Elvis, loves horses and her boyfriend too. And it's a long
Well, he's back by popular demand here on Out of the Park, and for the first time on video, people were like, I knew there was some Jeroleman guy that you get on your show all the time, but uh, we've never seen him before. There you are. So great to have you aboard, J-Roll. You can take the catcher mask off, though, if you want. Oh, man, without a problem. I'm glad to be on and see you guys live. So I want to get into what you're doing now, scouting with the Yankees and all that kind of stuff. But um, first and foremost, how much is your body at this particular point in time back to maybe where it was at the beginning of your career? Oof. Uh, you know, I was very fortunate that I didn't start catching until I was a sophomore in high school. And like, that's a whole long story in itself, but uh, I always had pretty fresh legs. So when I time I the Blue Jays drafted me out of Florida at a college, uh, I've only been catching for about five years. So like, I think that really helped me. And it's something I get asked all the time is, oh, you were a catcher. How's your body feeling? And I always say my body's feeling great. But then I think about, uh, I'd like to thank Thomas Bird on my hip surgery and Dr. Jimmy Andrews on my knee surgeries and stuff like that. But I feel overall fine. My body hold up great. Uh, I feel good, but thanks to good doctors. Hey, real quick, before you get in there, Tom, do you, do you tip? Do you tip surgeons? Just curious, because you, you tip the trainers. I learned that in fantasy camp. You've got to tip the trainers. But do you, do you tip the doctors ever? I mean, they're making good money. Oof. I will say that I've never tipped a doctor. Uh, I feel like their bills are pretty well. I think the tips included in the bill. And, uh, but I, you know, when I had the home plate collision and I had to work on the neck, I could only imagine how much doctors made from that. And thankfully it was all worth it. I don't want to say anything negative, but uh, if I forgot to tip a doctor and I should have, I just want to let them all know, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that. I love that actual concept. I'm actually going to a surgeon's tomorrow morning. Uh, to hopefully put to rest like a six-month odyssey from a surgery I had back last year. And if all goes well at that surgeon's tomorrow, I'm going to tip this doctor. <laughs> See what I've started? <laughs> uh, I'll tell you what, it makes me feel bad now, Tom, though, because it's almost like you're going to – I was always, always taught a tip when you go to a casino, like tip the dealer before they deal it firsthand to let them know, like, hey, I tip. You know, so if yep. there's anything you can do kind of shady, go ahead and do it. You know, one of those kind of deals. <laughs> See, I spent years in the restaurant industry, and I can tell you if you're going out to a bar or back when we could go out to a bar, um, that was what you wanted to do. You know, your first visit to that bar right at the beginning of the night, tip your bartender really, really big right off the bat. You won't wait for a drink for the rest of the night. I've wow. never done that. Thank you All for right. the tip. All right. Ready, ready for my <laughs> tip? Ready for my tip? Do you ever yes. go through the drive-thru at McDonald's and when you get your food, it, it's cold or it was stale or it just wasn't right, right? We've all had that experience. Right? Here's the trick. Here's the trick. Now, <laughs> I, I look at your body and you're probably thinking McDonald's. I, I don't eat that crap, but I'm sure you do. <laughs> so when you order, ask for a receipt. If you ask for a receipt at the drive-thru, they will think that you could be one of these secret shoppers or management people, oh. right? So every time I've done this, and those of you in our studio audience, take notes on this. Every I've done this probably about seven or eight times, Tom, since I mentioned this to you. He sends me texts every time. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Hot, fresh, like right out of the grease. 
So there you go. Wow. There's some tips. It's actually pretty ingenious. Yeah. You know, we got away from baseball a little bit, but there was one question that, I, you know, talking about when you started uh, catching. And mm -hmm. you know, we just had Jesse Litch on last week and uh, talking about pitchers workloads and things like I hate to bring it back to baseball, but uh, how you mentioned your own start with catching. Um, is that something everybody's talking about workloads with pitchers and, and trying to avoid those injuries with pitchers? Is that something that is being thought about nowadays at, at the minor league levels is that same sort of workload analysis and, and sort of easing off on catchers or have, have we uh not made? That's actually, it's a great question. Uh, you know, with the way you see a lot of unique catching styles today and, uh, you know, the new catching techniques. And I'm actually a fan of it because uh, I think it allows a lot of catchers. Uh, you had to be, and this might sound really bad. Athleticism was undervalued from the catching position. And that's why you saw a lot of shortstops and second basemen like the Tony Walters. And uh, these guys transition to catchers. They're pretty athletic. They can make adjustments and have pretty good, good mobility. Uh, you see these guys come behind the plate and they're so athletic that they can make an adjustment and teach, train their body pretty well. It's hard to train yourself to block a ball when you first start catching because I, want, I just think about this. You're training your body to get purposely hit by a baseball in the chest. Like that would make, if I didn't know anything about baseball, I'd be like, what? Like, you want me to get hit? Like, it just, it just, it's hard to train your body that. And if you're really athletic, you can make adjustments quickly. In today's game with the new catching techniques where you see knees on the ground and, you know, leg all the way out and stuff like that, these, all these different formulas of catching now, it really takes a lot of pressure off the body. So the guy that's not as athletic will now have an opportunity to catch because of that. And uh, so I think that, you know, with the knees on the ground, it takes so much off your hips and off your knees that it can really create longevity for that catcher to endure a longer season. Now, everybody's path is different, right? You get these guys that are, you know, first overall picks, bonus babies. They end up making it to the show right away. And then next thing you know, they're in the Hall of Fame when their career is done. Others have different routes for you. When did you, okay, A, when did you think you had a shot of actually making the majors? And B, was there a time in your minor league career where you were pretty much resigned to the fact that you were not going to make it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there is. And, uh, you know, I was, and kind of taking it from the beginning is I was this undersized, short, fat kid, five foot two in sophomore year of high school. I was having had puberty yet, had no armpit hair. And like, I was checking every day, but it was just like, you know, it was one of those deals where I was undersized. And I think that really helped me. Uh, I had to work harder than pretty much everyone else around me to be able to hang out with them. And I was so blessed to have an older brother who is, I mean, I, I don't want him to watch this because he's in, he's my mentor. I would never want him to know that. Uh, but he's now currently an assistant coach at the university of Florida. And uh, he went to Auburn. I actually got to play against my brother, but he was always so much better. Than me. And when you want to hang out with your older brother and he's two and a half years older, you got to be able to hang with your older brother and his friends. And that kind of gave me a lot of momentum and motivation to just keep working, working, working. And then all of a sudden one day comes and what happened with me was my brother went to college 
then I became a junior in high school and you feel like you're alone on an island. And so I had to make a decision right there of, you know, do I want to make this my life? Because if I do, I got to, there can't be anything else in the, in the way. And so like, that's where my journey kind of began. And it was the greatest thing that happened to me was my brother going to college because my whole life from there on was baseball and it hasn't really changed. But, uh, when I got confidence was my sophomore, yeah, my sophomore year of college, me getting confidence is the first time I go in my mind is I'm going to play in the major leagues. And it's just like, you have this clear tunnel and everything else nearby. If it's not going to help you get to the major leagues, get out of my way. It was just that simple. Um, I went to, and I, I'm, I don't want to sound like a good human being or making all these right decisions because it's, it's one of those things that it's the greatest thing that happened to me and the, like probably the strangest thing. And Barry's going to give me a hard time. But I went to the University of Florida. I had a lot of success there. And I only went out twice in three years, two times in three years. I didn't go out. I want to be a baseball player. And uh, a lot of people would be like, what in the world? But this is what I wanted to do. And this is how I wanted to do it. And I kind of had this vision of kind of the steps I needed to take and things I needed to give up to get there. And that was the first time my sophomore year was confidence was up. I was willing to work for it. And I was starting to get some good publicity, you know, playing on Team USA and all this kind of stuff. You get some pretty good uh, awards and stuff where people start to notice you. And when that happens, it just motivates you more. And I'm in my mind, I was going to be a major leaguer. And uh, when I knew it was near the end of my career was when I was coming back for my, for my collision. And uh, I remember I came back, I lost a lot of weight after the collision, but I played that year and it was just like, I felt 40 years old. And it's just like blocking drills. You always put, I, I started putting a face, like I was, no one's excited to be blocking, but if you want to hang out with these young kids and seem young, you got to match their intensity. And uh, I, I would have to put a face on to do it and kind of like, uh, prepare myself for this and act like I'm still young. And then when you get to a certain point where I would stretch at spring training, I would stretch before I went to the field, I would get to the field and stretch again. And so I would stretch before stretch before team stretch. <laughs> and that's when I knew like, I'm starting to get kind of old here, but uh, yeah. So that's kind of like when I kind of knew I was, I'm near the end. Yeah. So you know, when we hit the end and now, you know, your post playing career has included uh, coaching, if I'm not mistaken, you're scouting right now. You know, when you're looking at a young player today, um, are there things in your own journey that inform your, your opinions of them? Are you looking for things in that young catcher that you saw or felt about yourself as a young catcher, both good or bad, maybe? Yeah, uh, there are certain things. To me, a catcher has to do to be a catcher. And uh, I mean, you got to be athletic. You know, you see a lot of people that just, there might be a good catcher, but they're not very mobile. They're not very athletic. Uh, they don't have good hip flexibility. They don't have good hands. You know, those are hard things to correct. If you don't have good hands by the age of like 18, 19, that's really hard to correct. Uh, so, yeah, and that's why you see a lot of those second baseman shortstops transition to catchers. They already have good hands. They're pretty athletic. Uh, you know, that's a big thing to look at now, but the hardest thing is a really hard thing to scout 
until you really kind of get to know the person and get to know the player is when you go ahead and you get to know this person to find out they're a baseball lifer. Does baseball, is baseball their life? And, you know, those are the kids that it's kind of like they have their tunnel, stay away. And uh, it's really hard to scout and find it out because if you're talking with an 18 year old or a 21 year old, they're always just going to tell you what you want to hear because it's almost like you're interviewing them on a job opportunity. And so any, nobody's going to say anything negative about themselves in a job interview. And uh, so, but if you just watch by their actions, you know, drive by the field at 10 o'clock at night to see if anyone's there, you know, on a Friday night, you know, those little things are going to let you know is in baseball, this guy's life. Is this guy going to quit after two years or is he going to face adversity, run through it, like a run through the brick wall and this is going to be his life. And it's hard to scout, but that's something you definitely look for. J-Row, when you talked about uh, job interviews, you always need a good reference. And uh, speaking of good references, and uh, we spoke earlier about uh, Jesse Litch being on the show last week. And, uh, well, Jesse has uh, a little message. Not like He's scouting for the Yankees now. He's, he's got a lot of good things and positive things going on. He's a, uh, he's, he's a class act, and, you know, it's just he's one of those guys that would have probably made it had the – you know, the freak stuff didn't happen to him as well. Brian, when you hear compliments like that from a pitcher, uh, does it make it so much more worth it that maybe you didn't achieve as far as you wanted to achieve? You didn't have a career as long as you wanted to, but every person that we've had on that has worked with you or been a teammate of yours has nothing but amazing things to say. It, it does. It means a lot. And, uh, you know, I, I love all my former teammates and, you know, the, the one thing that, you know, these guys that played the game for a long time, you can always say is the one thing I guess all of us did was we never took it for granted uh, how fortunate we were to put on the uniform because at any time it can be ripped off. Uh, it means a lot to me hearing this from former teammates and former pitchers. And because uh, at the same time, we're spilling the same blood and the same mud. And if it, it's, it can be tough. You know, baseball can be a mean game. And if you handle it the right way and still try to help others, uh, you're doing the right thing. And, you know, I was just always so fortunate to be surrounded by great people that, you know, when you do that, they kind of rub off on you. And uh, I guess they kind of make you a better person. But, uh, you know, my head coach in college was a guy named Pat McMahon. And uh, he now works for the Yankees. And, Pat was one of the greatest human beings I've ever been around at always being first class in everything that you do. And that rubbed off on me. And uh, so hearing nice things from Jesse and former teammates and stuff like that, it, it really means the world to me. And I almost didn't know what to say right now. And I'm talking a lot because I don't know what to say because it's nice hearing nice things, but at the same time, you're just like, I don't want to talk about it too much, but uh, you know, I guess let's, I guess with pitchers, at the end, they know how much that player cared about him. I am so glad that we were able to embarrass you. Oh, I, like <laughs> it was weird. It was weird. Like I'm not an emotional guy, and I started getting some water in my eye right there uh, hearing they said that. And it's just, uh, it, it's a fun game that can be mean. Uh, baseball is a never-ending puzzle that we're always trying to find the pieces for, and I think that's the beauty in it. And uh, you know, playing with guys such as Jesse, and I remember Jesse making his debut. 
Uh, I remember where I was. I remember watching. He was facing the Orioles, and I think he threw went eight and two thirds, uh, if I remember correctly. And uh, you know, guys like that you really care about. And he had that vicious fastball that cut. And uh, but such a high energy player that I loved catching. He was always loose, and he made it really enjoyable. Uh, those are easy guys to be friends with, and uh, great guys to be teammates with. You know, you you bring that up. Um just sort of the intangible aspect of it. And, you know, your, your name, and Barry mentioned it, um, your name, when it comes up in the chats that we have with these players, every single time, it's like a light bulb going off. They're like, oh, Jero. <laughs> and, and you did, you had, you know, an unbelievable influence based on what we've heard just even in out of the park in the last couple months. Um, as a scout, is that something that is paid enough attention to that intangible effect on someone's teammates. Are there people in MLB paying enough attention to that right now? I think there are, you know, I know that we do a very good thorough, uh, I don't want to say investigation, but a background of that player. And, you know, even when it comes to talking to former people that played with that player to see if he really kind of fits the Yankee mold. And is he going to be a person that comes in the clubhouse and is, you know, going to be a Yankee? Is he a Yankee? And, you know, there are players that even, you know, college or high school that I'll even say he's just not a Yankee. Uh, and it kind of like you're looking for those players that can fit into a clubhouse. That's it. And that's one thing when you hear. And the one thing I was so blessed with was when I got called up to the big leagues with Toronto. Uh, you're always known, even if you're up there for one day or up there for 40 days. And with my case, I wasn't even able to play because I, I had that break and, uh, you know, so you're always known as a major leaguer and being known as a major leaguer is can fit into that clubhouse. He's been in a big league clubhouse. He knows what the environment's like. And, you know, some people are really I'm not mentioning anybody or anything like that, but some people are really when they start struggling, they talk about how good they are and or they love attention and stuff like that. That's not really a Yankee way. Uh, so that is stuff we look for. We try to find out about players before we are willing to invest in them. Jay Rowe, what a good point that it's not just the talent of the player, it's the human being that comes with it. And there are a lot of things that are going on right now in the world that if you are a professional athlete or if you are a celebrity of any sort, you have to be aware of. And, you know, the Roberto Alomar story that came out a few weeks ago I think shocked a lot of us that have been Roberto Alomar fans. I think that others would not be as surprised knowing the culture that he lived in as a professional ball player and someone who was in the spotlight as much as he was. Is there a lesson that needs to be taught to young ball players that, hey, you know, you be you're you could become a big star. You could see yourself on the highlights every night. You could have people that want to be around you but you cannot take advantage of that situation. Yeah. You know, without question, you know, you see it. Uh, I didn't personally know Roberto Alomar. Uh, I, I was the last player to wear number 12. Uh, that was interesting. And I got taken from me in spring training that year out of nowhere. And they told me they were retiring his number. And, uh, but I knew Sandy Alomar, uh, Roberto's brother. And it, it's interesting when, when the information came out, uh, I know how impactful Sandy was in my life. And it lets you know that, you know, some things aren't as clear as what you may think. 
and what you may know about a person. And I love Sandy, uh, but I didn't know Roberto. But when it comes down to kids these days, and it's more so of always be a first-class human being because your baseball career only lasts for a certain amount of time. When your career is over and everyone gets told at some stage in their life that it's, it's done, like your dream, it's time for the next dream. And uh, if you handle things first class, you're going to have other job opportunities to keep you in baseball. Maybe not as a player, but somewhere else. Uh, if you're not that guy and you have some, I guess, some inner demons, uh, it's going to be hard to find an opportunity to stay in the game. And uh, this is a game that I love and it's something I've always wanted to do. I knew even when I was done playing, I was going to stay in baseball. It was a simple, simple decision. But in today's world, everything is seen. If you make one mistake and even you see it today where they're going back to people's Twitter pages when they were 16 years old and they're coming out to life now when they're like in their 20s, upper 20s. And, you know, everything is seen today. Everything. So one mistake and you think you got away with it. Somebody saw it. And with social medias today, it's just a matter of time. So it's just uh, always feel like someone's watching. And when you feel like people are watching, tennis, the tendency is you're going to end up doing the right thing. It's when people aren't watching that I think people start making some poor decisions. Well, as a player, when you were in the minor leagues, if you were out with a group of teammates and one of them was being inappropriate in some way, would you see more people saying, hey, whoever you are, Bill, Sam, like you can't act this way, or will there be more encouraging him to do it, or will it kind of be split? It probably wouldn't be in your group or your, like your, your social circle. Uh, and if there's ever a problem with that person, it would just be uh, outside of that situation uh, when it's a one-on-one opportunities when you talk to them. And uh, because if you do it in a situation like that, you kind of confront that individual about something they're doing. Tendency are is they're going to they're gonna bow up to you and kind of be embarrassed. So it could start, a, you know, a conflict. Uh, so it's the same thing when it comes to baseball. If someone, you know, didn't know a responsibility, you don't embarrass them in front of the in front of everybody. They know they made a mistake. Pull them off to the side. Just be like, hey, things happen. Don't let it happen again. To me, what I used to do is if it happened again, I tried nice way, number one. Now I'm going to embarrass you. Now I am going to show you up in front of the team because obviously the nice way didn't impact you. So there's different way of, ways of handling it. But, you know, that's the way it probably wouldn't be in your social circles. One, uh, two is if you want to talk to them, talk to them about it away from that situation when there's not a lot of people around. As painful as something like the Alomar situation is, you know, for mostly for those involved and, you know, we can talk about it here, but yeah, I'm sure it's had a devastating effect on, you know, unfortunately a number of lives closely, but, you know, major league baseball coming out, and doing an investigation and acknowledging there's a problem and acting on it does seem, you know, like a step finally in, in, in a direction of trying to come to account with maybe some of the more toxic elements of its past. Um, do you think that we're moving in the right direction there with things like this, the, the, the Roberto Alomar decision? Or do you think that there is another way that baseball might be able to handle this to be more sustainably fair in the future. Yeah, I, I think without question, moving in the right direction, which is why we're talking about it. And uh, I, I think if it was, uh, 
If we weren't talking about it, there'd be some misdirection going on. But the fact that it was out there, it's being talked about, the more that people talk about it, to me, there's a better chance of a resolution when it comes to not having these things happen again. Because, you know, I've always been a big believer in the more voices heard, uh, the better chance of hearing one great idea and of how to correct the situation and stuff like that. So the fact that we're talking about it just gives more insight and resources to how do we stop this from happening in the future. And I think that's what us talking about it is, I guess, the plus side behind all this. All right, uh, J-Row, uh, Jesse Litch was talking about, uh, you know, you being a class act and the fact that, you know, had it not been for some freaky injuries, you would have, you know, probably made it and had a, a much longer career. Now, for those that are watching or listening and thinking, Davis, why are you bringing up this horrible thing again that happened to him? You, you, you've talked about this enough times that I think that you know what we're going to see right now. But uh, I will say this much. I'll say it before you started. I've never seen the play. I've never seen it. Oh, but this will be the this will be I'm willing to watch it. It's OK. Are you serious? You're cool. Oh, wow. You're OK. Yeah. Well, it, folks, we've got a first here right now as Brian Jerome is going to see this play for the first time. So watch it. And if you feel free to to tell us what you remember or what you saw when this all happened. OK, okay. here we go. Oh, yeah, you got me. I remember everything leading up. Uh, I remember that the situation, the game was the seventh inning. It was, yeah, it was seventh inning, one out, runner on third, infield in. It was a tie game. So this was in Erie, Pennsylvania, uh, which is not one of the prettiest ballparks to play in. And uh, I just remember the fact that Runner on third, one out, seventh inning, tie game. And as a catcher, you get trucked so much in your career. You kind of have a inept, uh, I guess, uh, a good ability of understanding that you might get trucked here. And you just, as long as you get an opportunity to put yourself in a position to protect yourself and still hold on to the ball, that's kind of like, but you get hit so much, you just learn from being, being hit in the past. But with this situation, I'm going to go into the baseball kind of uh, mindset here is uh, I know I'm saying this for like the third time, but runner on third, one out, left hand hitter up, infield in. So the first thing I'm going to do is a ground ball is hit the second base. I'm going to peek to see if he's coming on contact, which means the balls hits on the ground. The runner on third takes off. If he takes off, I'm getting hit. So in my mind, it'll put me into a better position. Uh, you know, so I can absorb the blow without getting full impact. So th the hardest thing about this play was when the ground ball was hit, I look at the guy at third, he took off. Immediately, I know he's going to hit me. So what I do is I'll transfer all my weight to my right side for this ball, for this impact. So when he does hit my left, my weight's on my right, I'm going to spin. And that's when you'll normally see a catcher get hit and kind of spin. And it really don't feel much of an impact. The problem with this play was when the, the guy that threw the ball to home, our second baseman, threw it to my right. Him throwing it to my right changed everything. And so now I'm catching the ball over here with the runner coming over here, so I don't have any peripheral vision on him, and I can't hear him or feel him. 
So you get hit enough, you can almost feel the runner. You know where they're going to be at. But with that ball thrown to the right, now I can't feel them. So I thought I gave the runner enough room to kind of slide. And it was the first time I was ever hit where I really didn't think I was going to get hit. So when I caught the ball, immediately I'm thinking I have to turn and put a swipe tag to the back corner of the plate. And I caught, turned. And the key part is when I caught, I put my weight back on my left side, thinking I was going to have to put a quick tag in the back corner of the plate. And by me putting my weight back to my left side, he came and hit me in the neck, but I had nothing to absorb the blow. It was impact on impact. All my weight was, it's kind of like leading with the shoulder in football, you know, two guys running in with their shoulders up, you're going to get a full impact. And, uh, he cleaned my clock. It was the first time I ever dropped the ball in a collision. And I mean, it was the first time I ever woke up in a hospital from a collision. But uh, I just remember that their biggest concern was I had a laceration in my neck that was kind of shooting some blood out. And so they thought my carotid might have been hit. Come to find out it was like my esophagus got hit. But something went two inches deep in my neck. And uh, they don't know what it was to this day. They have no idea what it could have been that went two inches deep. But the concern at the time was not the collision or the concussion. They knew I had a severe concussion, but it was more on the fact of the blood coming out of my neck. And I think, because uh, I've seen pictures, people have tried to get me to sign this. The only thing I won't sign is like a picture of this, uh, just because I'm like, that's such an interesting picture to get signed. But um, the doctor, uh, our team trainer is a guy named John Contritis, who's still with the Nationals. Uh, Catrides came over and the first thing it was first time he seen it, I was looking for it was he took gauze and was putting it on my neck right away because blood was coming out of my neck. But uh, I had a pretty severe concussion. I don't remember the next five hours and come to find out what the doctors and my coaches told me was that I asked the same question every five minutes for four hours. And uh, for some reason, my brain wasn't taking it in, but I would just ask, uh, did I hold on to the ball? And they would say, no, you didn't hold on to the ball. But uh, Lee Croy, one of the times, he told me this later, one of the times my head coach guy named Matt Lee Croy, who's a former major league catcher of a long time, and I loved Matt. And uh, I guess one time when I asked him, uh, did I hold on to the ball? He goes, son, you didn't hold on to the gloves. And uh, <laughs> it's funny now thinking back about it, but uh, I guess I asked that same question every five minutes, four hours, and it, it was uh, – it was tough for doctors to really understand what was going on. They just knew that the signals weren't being sent to, I guess, my brain or something. And I know there's some, some of my friends out there being like, that seems like a normal problem with you, Brian. So that was probably normal. That's probably not a signal. But uh, no, it was, it was a unique incident. I call it the perfect storm. Uh, a lot of unique things had to happen. But uh, to me, even to this day, the runner's name was Brandon Douglas. I didn't know him at the time. Uh, I got to know him more afterwards. He called and checked on me a lot to the point where I told Brandon, hey, you stop calling me, please. Uh, I, I think you're a hard player. And the guys that gave him a hard time, I, I didn't understand why they gave him a hard time just because it's a playoff game. If he doesn't truck me there and I swipe tag him out at the plate, he might be going back to the dugout. And his teammates are like, dude, what are you doing? Why don't you take out your element? And uh, he didn't do that. So he, he was playing the game hard. And going into it, wherever the ball is hit, he was had it in his mind. I got to truck the catcher. Just like I had in my mind at the beginning, I'm about to get trucked. 
So, you know, it was a unique play where the perfect storm happened. A lot of things had to go wrong for this kind of uh, development to happen. But at the end of the day, if you get hit that hard, hold on to the ball, make it worth it. You know, Jerry, by me throwing the ball away and my glove away, it wasn't worth it, I guess. Jay Rowe, in a couple of seconds, we're going to bring in our studio audience. But before we do, I've got to ask you, you said that you had never seen that play before. So t- two questions. A, what was it like to see finally? And B, uh, why didn't you see it after all these years? Uh, you know, honestly, it was because a lot of it had to do with the media at the beginning. Uh, you know, just I, I could say, hey, I lived it, never seen it. You know, I really can't give you much insight on how I feel about it. If I thought it was a dirty play or a non-dirty play, because that's what everyone wanted to know. Do you think this was dirty? You know, Brian, you played for so long at this point. Was this a dirty play? And I'd be like, I, I didn't see it. I lived it. And, you know, the people that saw the replay, my eyes, I never see them. The last thing I saw before getting knocked out was shadow. That's the last thing I saw. So a lot of it was I could never be dishonest with the media of saying, hey, I, I don't know if it was a dirty play. All I know is the guy hit me. And honestly, if he didn't hit me, he might have had some questions that he had to answer back in his dugout. So that was one reason why I never watched it. But the other one was, as I was at peace with it, you know, pretty quickly right after, like I was never mad at the Brandon Douglas for hitting me. This is part of the game. As a catcher, I knew this could happen. So it's not like, you know, there's some legal problems or anything like that. This is a situation that could have happened and we all signed up for it. But uh, I was at peace with it. You know, there was no issue there at all. But what was the other question? What was it like to see it now after all these years? Uh, come to goosebumps just because it's like uh, I've seen that picture so much. You know, of that, I knew like that video because it's cell phone footage, I would assume. But uh, yeah, I saw like just the video part so much, just the picture still picture framed. I never pressed play or anything like that. But it wasn't hard because at the beginning when it was more blown up, uh, I guess, I don't want to say globally, but all throughout the U.S., this play, rule needs to be changed, this play, this play. Uh, I, I was going through my concussion problem when it was all over ESPN and all these different networks, I, I couldn't watch TV because of, you know, the issues I was having with my concussion. So I, I, it wasn't hard at the beginning to not watch it. You know, a lot of my friends were, if I told them I haven't watched it, like, Oh, you gotta watch it. It, it was more to me of uh, I, I'll watch it one day by accident or, you know, maybe years down the road and it's just been so long. Why not watch it? You know? So I, I should have held on that ball though to make it worth it. Hey. <laughs> do you want to see it again? <laughs> hey, I'll do whatever. Absolutely. <laughs> is, uh, is baseball a better, you know, since this collision, you know, baseball has been kind of slowly stepping and removing a lot of those tricky physical plays and, 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 and putting in rules to stop things like that from happening. Is it making baseball a better game? Uh, you know, it's, it would be, it's like a double-edged sword to answer that question, just because if I was to say, uh, yes, it's a better game, you know, then that, I don't want to say the ego of a catcher of being this tough guy that can take those impacts, uh, that loves that toughness as a catcher, you got to be in the middle of a brawl. You got to be in the middle of all those unique situations. You're supposed to be this tough guy. Uh, it kind of goes against everything that was ingrained in my head as a catcher. If I was to say I agree, if I say I disagree with it, well, then now I'm taking away some safety. 
of future players. And it's just like, it's not a win-win situation, uh, whether I agree or disagree. It's just not a win-win situation to answer the question. Uh, do I think there are benefits for, from it? Absolutely. You know, I think there are some benefits. Do I think that there could be some issues with it? Absolutely. Uh, just like anything, any problem or any, even any law out there, there's going to be some ups and downs with it. With this play, it's a double-edged sword that if you're looking for problems with the play, you'll find some. If you're looking for problems to not have the play, you'll find some. So it's, uh, to me, it's just an interesting play that uh, me being one of the causes of the rule change is more interesting than anything else because I didn't want to be remembered just like for that play. You know, you want to be remembered as a guy that played kind of like what, what, what Jesse said, that means the world to me. Uh, because you don't want to be remembered for that. You want to be remembered to you as a player and not for a play. But uh, it's it's interesting. You know, it's interesting looking at both sides of the rule change. Yeah. Well, j Row, uh, you weren't in a Blue Jay uniform for a long time, but you made an impact. And you've made an impact <laughs> all the times you've been on our show. So we have uh, a number of your fans that are going to join us now. How are we doing, guys? Everyone's good. You see that? Good. This is, uh, good. All right, so uh, let's get rolling now. So let's uh, begin with, how about we pick Sue? Sue, you can go first. Say hello to Mr. Brian Drolleman. Hello, Brian. So Hi, nice. Sue. Thank you for doing that. It's so interesting to listen to. My question is, you know, with not being able to go to Blue Jay game, to baseball games now, I've been watching so many games on TV, and I'm intrigued by the, the little box that's, is on TV and there's so many calls that I think are wrong. Okay, sometimes it works in the Jays in the Jays' favor, but I just wonder what's your opinion on this talk about robot umpires? Oh, you know, I, that's that's a great question, Sue. It's interesting. I'm a, as a catcher, I love uh, the human element to the mm -hmm. game, and that there's human error. Uh, I know as a catcher, I've made a lot of errors in my time that it really made the game fun for me as a catcher to try to manipulate a pitch a little bit for it to be called a strike. And it's almost like uh, being a catcher can become artistic because it's kind of like uh, you almost, this is a bad example of talking about catchers. It's almost like you're trying to be like a Houdini. You're trying to catch a pitch here and make it seem like it's right there. And it's an artistic ability to it. I love the human element of being able to have some trickery and manipulating a pitch. But I do understand uh, when it comes to the robotic side of it, uh, letting the best pitcher win, getting every called strike a strike. And uh, the hard part to that is that's not the way we've ever played the game from Little League to coach pitch, to high school, college, then all of a sudden you get professional and it's gonna become robotic. I I can't say I'm a disagreeing on, disagreeing on it. There's just so much baseball now that you wanna get the right team to win that deserves to win the game, to get every call right at all times. Mm -hmm. But I do love the artistic ability of being able to be a catcher and manipulating pitches. To me, that was one of my funnest things and uh, was to have a, the conversation with this gentleman behind me, really getting to know them to the point where they really trust you. And I do, I do like them. I, I do have a good relationship with them, 
but I'm going to try to steal as many pitches from this umpire as I can. And so it's kind of like, you don't want to say using this guy behind you, the umpire, but uh, if you're a good human being and you know how to talk and you argue at the right time and you manipulate a little bit, they're going to trust you. And uh, that's the part of the game I really enjoyed. And if uh, the robotics get involved, it might take away that well, little bit of great enjoyment. Question, but I remember Sue, that. I thank you so much. Okay. Uh, let's move over to Liz. Liz, say hi to Brian Jarelliman. Hello. Oh. Hi, Brian. It's nice to see you. You as well. <laughs> thank you for doing this. I just wondered um, if you had any kind of favorite um, fan experiences that you've had. I'm sure you've had lots over the years. And if there's any that kind of stand out to you. Yeah, you know, uh, the one thing I always enjoyed doing was uh, when I was a little kid, Liz, mm -hmm. I was so I grew up here in West Palm Beach, where I currently live right now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, I haven't been back here since I was 18. Once I went to college, my family moved away. It's my first time being back. And my my dad took took me out of school one day. Uh, I, I got to make sure. I don't know if that's a good thing, but uh, <laughs> my dad took me out of school one day and he took me to a spring training game. And my favorite player back then was a guy by the name of Will Clark. And nickname, mm -hmm. uh, his nickname was Will the Thrill. He always looked like he was mad. He always looked like he was mad. But he was mm -hmm. my favorite player growing up. And I got to see him play, and I was this little kid. And I ran down to go get an autograph. So, you know, it was unique being that player in spring training and have all these people run up for your autograph knowing that that was you one day. And mm -hmm. uh, so that helped me want to sign a lot of autographs because I remember being that guy. But uh, Will Clark kind of breezed past me, you know, when I was trying to ask for his autograph. But I go, Will, you're my idol. I was this five, like five-year-old kid. Will, you're my idol. He came, grabbed me out of the stands, put me on the field and played catch. Wow. Oh, that's so cool. And that meant the world to me. So whenever I was playing, whether it was in double-A, triple-A, or even that short time when I was in the big leagues, in the big leagues, it's hard to let a fan onto the field. So I would play catch with a fan, like in the stands. And if, as long as they weren't around a lot of people and I thought they could catch, the biggest thing is you got to get a fan that knows how to catch. Because if you throw a ball to somebody and hit them in the head, now you got a lawsuit when you're trying to do a nice thing. That's probably why, they never, that's why the players uh, never played catch with me. <laughs> I remember watching Barry hitting, uh, trying to hit baseballs uh, one spring training. He made contact? Base running's terrible. Oh my gosh, took him two days to get to first. Took about seven seconds to get down the line. You legit look like a bat boy. I'm kidding, Barry. That's but, uh, you know, from that point when I was in double A and in triple A, I'd always take a kid at the stands and bring him on the field like Will Clark did with me that day. And uh, I started becoming smarter with it. I would roll a couple balls to him to see if he knew what he was doing. And then I'd throw him some, like, if I felt like he could catch, we'll play Thank catch. Thank you so much, Liz. That's awesome. Thank you, Brian. Again. Absolutely. Hey, Tom, they're, I mean, these questions are better than anything we ever ask, I got to say. Every week. Every single week. <laughs> All right, week. Uh, Fiona, you're up next. Hi, Brian. It's nice to meet you. You as well, Fiona. You played for several different teams in their minor league systems. What can you share with us about the Jays minor league system? Yeah, uh, that's, that's a great question. 
it's funny is hearing these like I've never I've never been asked these before so I really gotta think here uh the one thing that I always enjoyed because a lot of different organizations they're good at some aspects and then they have some weaknesses maybe with just with you uh in certain aspects and uh the one thing I always say about the Jays is you always knew where you stood as a player and that's really important is to know where you stand uh that meaning, you know, a, an example would be J.P. Aaron Sebia was a catcher that got drafted the year after me. And uh, I went in the sixth round in 2006. J.P. went in the first round in 2007. Me and J.P. played together in USA, played against each other in college. We knew each other before we even got to play together. Uh, right before they drafted J.P., I got a phone call saying, hey, we just want to let you know we're about to take J.P. Aaron Sebia. Uh, in the first round and it's just those little tidbits of information you're like oh great I love JP you know and so it's just like getting a little bit of information like that really helps and when me and JP played together in double a in 08 uh, they called me up they called me in the office two days earlier like hey we're gonna call up JP here in Sevilla he's doing too good in high a you and JP are gonna split time you're gonna catch two games while you're catching he's DHing while you're DHing he's catching and so you guys are going to play every day, but the information that was given to us meant a lot. And you can kind of put yourself in a, in 2008, I was 22, 23 years old. So I'm still somewhat young and uh, I'm only in pro ball at that time for two years where if they just called him up and didn't tell me anything, like you almost, you don't know what to think. You don't know, you, you're, you're going to start pressing because they're bringing this player that's really good when you don't have information like that, you don't know where you stand. And the Blue Jays were always phenomenal at letting you know where you stood. And the communication was so phenomenal uh, from the top down of, you know, Tony LaCava is somebody that I, I still get to see with what I do. And he meant the world to me because he was never afraid to make a phone call and just telling you where you stood and some what you needed to work on. And you really enjoy people that are brutally honest with you and let you know where you stand. And that's one thing the Blue Jays were so good with. In your experience in the majors, in the minor league systems, was there one like common or really critical mistake that major league teams often make with their developing players? Yeah. You know, sometimes what you see in the minor leagues, and I won't say like which organization or anything like that is yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the lack of communication between levels. And uh, it could be that you go from double A to triple A or high A to double A. And it's just a lack of communication between those two levels. So when I'm working with my hitting coach in double A, uh, I get up to triple A, that hitting coach wants me to work on what he's doing. Not knowing what I'm currently doing, what I'm trying to work on or what I'm trying to correct. And so a lot of times you're fighting an uphill battle getting called up because of a lack of communication between the two levels. And you see that a good amount where one hitting coach has an idea. You work with that person for two months. You have a great chemistry. You know what you're trying to achieve that day. Get called up to AAA. And that coach goes, no, no, no. That's not what we do here. We're doing it this way. And then all of a sudden, now you're almost, it's like a spring training for you all over again, trying to try something different and try something new that your body's not used to. It can right. make it really One difficult. One more question to go. Really He's difficult. been waiting very patiently. The clock is ticking behind him. And uh, John, say hello to Brian. Hi, Brian. How Brian, you doing, John? Compare... I'm good. Thank you so much for asking. 
Uh, Brian, I have a comparison question. When you were warming up pitchers, uh, what did you do? And is it done differently now with all of the information that's available, um, you know, with iPads and video and all the rest of that? It's a great question. Uh, wow. You guys, I'll tell you, was it four for four? Four for four? <laughs> Every time. Oh, I, I feel bad for Barry and Tom right now because they got to step up their game. Uh, <laughs> no, you know, that, that's a good question. You know, the typical routine was always every pitcher was a little bit different, whether it be a starting pitcher or a reliever. And, uh, you know, typically what a guy would do would be uh, they throw two fastballs extension side. Now extension side would be opposite arm side. So if pitcher's a righty, he's throwing it into a lefty away to a righty. It's the hardest place to start throwing a pitch is to go glove side or extension side, going away from them. Uh, typically, that's where they start. And once they get like one or two there and they feel comfortable, now they start moving back to the middle, back to the inner part, and then they go into their secondary pitches. And they might throw two curveballs, two sliders, then right back to two fastballs, two changeups, and right back to two fastballs. And that's the typical type of like warm up. Uh, every pitcher being different because relievers have to get ready so quickly. Um, said it's a little more faster. So as a catcher, you're catching, sticking, trying to make it look good, throw it back to him as quick as you can. Brian, on behalf of all of us, I have to say thank you so much. This was really enlightening. We, I, you know what, if you ever did any lecture halls or whatever, I would be sitting in the first row taking notes. That was fantastic. Guys, this was great. I always appreciate it. It's always good seeing <laughs> you, Barry. It really is. Too. There is former Toronto Blue Jays minor league catcher Brian Jerolliman, and I told you folks, that you would love this guy's story. Tom, he's not a household name. But I tell you what, there have been other former ball players who were not household names who turned into great broadcasters. Look at Joe Siddle. And nobody really knew Joe as a player, but now he's establishing himself as a broadcaster. I think that Brian Jolomo would make a fantastic broadcaster. The stories he has to tell. We didn't even get into the fact that this guy caught a no-hitter in double-A ball. Okay, do you know who it was thrown by? A little trivia question for you? I don't, no. Oh, I'll give you a hint. He pitched for the Blue Jays, and his father was a star pitcher back in the probably early 80s. Oh, wow. Uh, someone doesn't know his Blue Jays trivia. Yep, I'm swinging and missing. Yeah. I'm leaving it. I'm not even going to tell you the answer. Folks, if you know the answer, DM Tom at 4th Thomas and let him know which former Toronto Blue Jay pitcher threw a no-hitter in double-A and it was caught by Brian Drolleman. Anyhow, thank you to Brian Drolleman again. Uh, we had some great questions from our in-studio audience. And if you'd like to be a member of our in-studio audience for a future recording of Out of the Park, Thomas, how can someone join in? Patreon.com slash out of the park. Three bucks a month, five bucks a month. And you can take part in all of these like fantastic conversations. And and these are talks, you know, I think this week's really proves, you know, whether or not you're a baseball fan, the insights, the perspectives, just the amazing stories that come out from just the exceptional lives these guests have all led. I mean, it's for everybody. Come on in. Three bucks a month, patreon.com slash out of the park. Absolutely. You will not regret it, folks. And as we said on next week's show, we'll be joined by Mark Burley's father, John Burley, and you are in for another treat. 
as we, we kind of mix it up a little bit. We're trying to give you a little something different than what we have been over the last little while. So uh, that is going to be a lot of fun. Big thank you once again to Brian Zerolliman, to Raj Sapaya from Foundation Physiotherapy, uh, and Thomas. Uh, not only would I not be concerned about whether or not I dropped the ball in a home plate collision, I would probably take the advice that my father once gave me about if you're in a forest and you see a bear, what do you do? I would have just played dead. Let the guy score. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, folks, for listening and watching and making us a part of your week.